Hey, if you don't have a Bible, you can turn it on uh, or look down in front of you. There's a number of black Bibles surrounding you. We're going to go right to the center of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms. And the Psalm we're going to look at today is in Psalm 32. And before we jump in there again, Psalm 32, the, the question that we're kind of looking at and, and wrestling with is this process of change. You know, when you look at the Psalms, and we talked about this last week, the emotions of the Psalms are just edgy. You know, if someone uh, prayed like they pray in the Psalms in church, you'd think, okay, that, that guy's demonic. You know what I mean? Because they're crying out. They're screeching. They're crying. They're pouring their heart out. The emotions are overwhelming. You know, for us Westerners, Enlightenment-type people, uh, we see that kind of emotionalism. We think, okay, something's really wrong with that. He needs Jesus. But they're honest with their emotions. They don't stuff their emotions. But realize every psalm is in the presence of God. And so it's not just emotionalism for emotionalism's sake. It's not expressing whatever you think just to express what you think. It's taking what you're thinking and all those harsh realities and bring them into the presence of God and allowing God to change us. Because, see, when it comes to change, we cannot, and hear this, we can't change ourselves. Christianity is not a self-help program. It's not five steps to a better life. It's not three ways of pursuing your best life now. Christianity is about encountering God and allowing God to change us, which means we can put ourselves on the road to change. We can get ourselves near the pathway of change, but we can't ultimately change ourselves. It's only God through his spirit that begins to change us. But the question becomes, what do we need for change to happen? And what we're going to find in Psalm 32 is what we need is confession. What we need is confession. So let's jump in Psalm 32 verse 1. The word of the Lord, a masculine of David, and I don't know what that is. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And God begins to speak. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. For it will not stay near. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
Father, the message, blessed is the one who is forgiven. I just confess that's counterintuitive. Blessed is the one that's failed, knows the depths of his failure, and has been forgiven. That, Lord, you pour out your spirit on those who know how, how poor they are, how much they need you. Father, you're near to the brokenhearted. You're near to those who know they're captive, that know their desires are not there to love them or direct them in a path of goodness. But rather, Lord, when we submit to you and say, Father, search my heart. See if there's anything in me today that you want to readjust, you want to change, you want to make new. And Father, today would we say because of your word that you're leading us in a new direction of righteousness. Father, meet us here, we'd ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So how do you fail well? You know, I have to confess, uh, I think as a young man, I didn't do that well. You know, I'd fail and I'd beat myself up and then I'd fail and I'd kind of beat myself up again because I thought... And really, this is uh, in some ways a confession. I thought that my self-worth was based on how well I did. And so if I ran the best, if I played the best, if I performed the best, then I felt the best. But when there was someone better, someone faster, someone stronger, I didn't know how to respond when I wasn't the best or when I didn't do the best. And so when I failed and I fell, I couldn't be honest about my failure. And really, when, when someone came to me and said, hey, are you okay? I know you guys, you lost that match, you lost that game, are you doing okay? I'd be like, yeah, of course I'm okay. Now, inside I was crushed. I was destroyed. But see, I couldn't be honest about what I was really experiencing. And see, so how can we fail well? How can we fail in such a way that when we fail, when we recognize our failures, we get up with more joy? We get up with strength. We get up with courage. We get up in such a way that we're actually better than when we failed. Well, that's what this psalm is really about. Because we're going to see three things in this psalm. First of all, why confession is essential. Because I think many of us think confession, really? Isn't that for the bad day? You know, I think I did that back in 2017 when something really bad happened. Maybe that's something I do two or three times a year when I really mess up. But confession is essential for change. The second thing we need to see is the pathway we have to take down the road of confession. And the final thing that David shows us is really the essence or the secret or the key to confession. So the first question, why is confession so essential? Why would we spend a day talking about repentance and confession. Well, notice in verse 1, whom David calls blessed. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. And I'll tell you, when I read that this week, that's counterintuitive. Because, see, I think blessed are the ones who succeed, right? Blessed is the guy that doesn't have to admit he failed. Blessed is the one that doesn't have to apologize, that doesn't have to admit he's weak. Blessed is the one who's strong, who always walks in strength and conquers his foes and accomplishes what he or she wants in life. See, 
David says, no, the one who is blessed is the one who knows he needs to be forgiven, and he has been forgiven. Blessed is the one that knows he needs to be deeply forgiven, and he has been forgiven. Now, what does this word blessed mean? Because I think in our American context, it means a lot of different things. Now, first of all, blessed doesn't just mean happiness. It includes happiness, but it's not it, it doesn't mean just happiness because Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. So happiness tends to be based on circumstances. Blessedness is there regardless of the circumstance. And then second, blessedness doesn't mean just financial prosperity. There are those that teach today, if you're blessed, it means God's going to bless you in your company, your job, in your relationships. He's going to give you material wealth. Well, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so blessedness is something that's deeper than financial wealth. It's something that's greater than simply the circumstances of life. To define blessedness, in some ways it's, it's incredibly difficult, but the idea is it's a wellness of soul. It's a totality of being, a, a joy and a comfort and a peace. And sometimes it could be shalom. In some places, it's this word hesed, which is covenantal love, covenantal faithfulness. It's a recognition that even though things go wrong in my life, my life is secure because my life is found in God. You know, Paul says this in, Corinthians, in uh, Colossians, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives, when, Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Meaning my life isn't my own, my life is found in God. And when your life is in God, it's something that nothing in this world can take away. If your life is found in that relationship with God, nothing in this world can take away. And David is saying, blessed are those who know they need to be forgiven, and they have been forgiven. You know, Jesus talked a lot about this. A lot of his parables hit on this idea of forgiveness. There's one story in particular in which Jesus encountered two individuals. One was one that you would think doesn't need to be forgiven. He was a Pharisee named Simon. The other one is a prostitute, someone that we would assume she knows she needs to be forgiven. Well, Jesus comes to home of Simon the Pharisee, this righteous religious leader, this guy that always has it together. And when he enters that house, Simon doesn't show him the hospitality of the day. Doesn't help him to wash his hands, wash his feet. He doesn't greet him with a kiss. Rather, he's very skeptical of Jesus. And then he finds reasons for being even more skeptical because a woman comes in. This woman was a prostitute. And see, when Simon didn't show any hospitality, she showed tremendous hospitality. She began to weep at his feet, washing his feet with her tears, and then drying his feet with her hair. Now, Simon's sitting over on the side, and he's looking at this scene, and he's saying, you know, if Jesus was really a prophet, if he was really from God, he would not let this woman touch him. He was filled with cynicism. He was filled with skepticism. And Jesus, uh, knowing what Simon was thinking, I think in one of the best rebukes in all of the Bible, Jesus looks at Simon and he says to him, Simon, 
Do you know why this woman is showing such compassion and love? And why you are not? Luke 7, verse 47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Meaning, he who is forgiven much, loves much. That the most blessed individuals, the most rich and full individuals, are those that know they need to be deeply forgiven, and they have been deeply forgiven that their sins have been covered. So notice this again if you go down in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And then he says, whose sin is covered. Now that phrase is covered should take us back as it would in Jewish thought to Genesis chapter 3. You see in Genesis chapter 3 and actually in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were described as naked and unashamed that they were fully exposed, fully known, and had nothing to hide. Now, when rebellion came into the world, or when sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve turned their heart from God, what we find is that instead of being naked and unashamed, they were naked and pretty ashamed. And what they did was they began to run. And they started grabbing things like success, money, good looks, and they began to cover themselves. Actually, in the text, it's just fig leaves but they covered themselves up. It was a way of hiding, hiding what they really felt. Because I think there's nothing really more dehumanizing than someone catching you off guard, someone seeing really who you are. Are you with me on that? Someone seeing you not in the best, not in the way that you want to present yourself, not in the way that you hope to be seen, but rather kind of peering over the fence, looking around the corner, maybe hearing you out of the corner and seeing you out of the corner of their eye and recognizing you are not who you claim to be. Have you had a moment like that? Said something you shouldn't have said and he was right behind you. Texted something you shouldn't have texted and it went to the wrong woman. What do you feel? Why, why is that so demoralized? Why are we so humiliated? Because I think there's things that we all want to cover up. There's things for which that we do, we feel ashamed. And, and so we don't want people to see. Uh, it's why we spin the truth. It's why we excuse ourselves when we do the wrong thing and we blame other people and we have a list of reasons why you should accept the wrong that I did is not that bad. We have all these things, all these ways of kind of covering up our shame. Because see, often I'll have conversations with people and they'll say, you know, that, that's the problem with this Christianity. It's guilt. You guys always talk about what's wrong. All the stuff that you need to be forgiven. See, I don't have any guilt. I don't need to be forgiven because I define myself for myself what is right or wrong. See, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I don't think we can say just because we believe in God, somehow we have more guilt than others. I think everybody has guilt because I'll tell you, everyone is trying to cover. Turn on the television, turn on the news. You look at the ridiculous ways. I mean, just watch The Bachelor. Actually, don't watch The Bachelor. <laughs> Probably nothing I'd be more ashamed of my sons for if they go on The Bachelor. 
what are we doing? Why do we need the rose? Why do we need that person to say, hey, you're okay? It's because there's something that we need to project. There's something that we need to cause other people to think that somehow we're okay. But when that gets exposed, when they see behind the blinds and they see who we really are, that's when we feel ashamed. I've got to tell you a story. This is taking me back to junior high. See, in junior high, I went from private school into public school, first year in public school. You know how that might be. Got into public school, and I don't know how it happened, but the prettiest girl in school, yeah, she liked me. Her name was Lana. And if she's listening, hey, Lana, I hope you're having a a good life. And thank you for, uh, for liking me at that time. But, you know, you come into a new school, and I felt like a dork. I felt like nobody, I didn't know anyone. You know, I kind of hung out with these guys back in elementary school, but it had been three years of private school, and now I'm back in public school, and they've all grown up, and they don't look like they used to. And so I'm trying to fit in, and I felt amazing that this girl wanted to be with me. And she was a cheerleader. I mean, come on, y'all. She was right up front. And so here we are at this game, and, and one of her friends, and I know this, this friend, she did not like me. And so she was talking to me, so I thought, you know, I was kind of gullible at that time, and I thought, okay, she's talking to me. We must be okay. And she told me about this new cool thing that everyone's doing, that what you're supposed to do is to say the name of your boyfriend or girlfriend backwards. And so her boyfriend was on the football team, and so she yelled out, hey, Nad, I love you. His name was Dan, D-A-N. Nad, I love you. And he kind of waved, and I was like, okay, that's really cool. Well, I wasn't really thinking about how you spell L-A-N-A, A-N-A-L. I love you, anal. (laughs) In that moment, I felt all the coolness, all all the props I got for being with Lana was stripped. And here I am standing up in front of everyone, cheerleaders looking at me, some of the football players, and they're like, really? That's shame. You know what I want to do? I wanted to hide. I can, and listen, I'm 40, what, three? Am I 43? 43. (laughs) I still hate that story because it makes me look like a fool. And the one thing I didn't want people to know is that I was a fool. What is that? It's shame. And see, it's not, that, it's not that just that those who are religious have these standards. All of us have standards. And here's the fact. No one lives up to their own standards. It's not that God's just going to judge us on his standards. The fact is he could judge us on our own standards and none of us would stand. Do you see how powerful it is? Blessed is the one who is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There is nothing I would have wanted more in seventh grade than to be covered by God. That in that moment of shame, God showed up and said, he's okay. He's right. You see the power of confession. It leads us to a place where God becomes our covering, and I don't have to hide anymore. Now, here's the, here's the thing. How do we actually do that? And that's where really we're going to camp in on verse 5, but the entire passage uh, gives us a picture of what confession looks like. And there's four main things I want to share with you. And here's the first thing. We have to distinguish between true and false guilt. 
We have to distinguish between true and false guilt. And so notice in verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And actually in Psalm 51, which is a, a psalm in which David is praying to God for forgiveness for an act of adultery and add to that murder. I mean, it's one thing commit adultery. It's one thing to commit murder. I mean, here's a guy who committed adultery, committed murder, and he's praying to God in Psalm 51, verse 4. And listen to his words. He says, God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I think all of us would say, hey, hold up. You committed adultery. You then went out and murdered the husband of the woman you committed adultery with. And then you tried to hide it. And you misused your power as the king of Israel. What do you mean you only sinned against God? See, what David is addressing is he says, I've found a place to find the difference between true and false guilt. I've got a place that I go to to find the difference between an overactive conscience and true honest guilt. Because there is such a thing as false guilt. I think there's some of us that have this kind of guilt, maybe from our parents, maybe from our upbringing, that we constantly feel wrong when we're not doing anything wrong. That we don't feel right when we're right. We just have this overactive conscience that we constantly have to live up to some expectations. And what you need to do is to kick it, to get rid of it, to throw it off, to recognize, hey, that's not true guilt. But there is such a thing as true guilt. There are times, and some of you may be on the opposite side of that scale, underactive conscience. You should feel bad. You should have remorse. You should be broken. There are things that we do that we should recognize are wrong and we should carry guilt for. And David is saying to God, God, you are my standard for evaluating how I feel, not my conscience. Jiminy Cricket says, always let your conscience be your guide. A lot of people in prison who followed that. You with me? Don't always follow your conscience. God is the standard. So the question has to become, where do we go to find that standard? To know when my life is going in the right direction. Well, what David is saying is he goes to the Word of God. He says in the Psalms, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. God, here's the reality. I don't want the world's standards. I don't want my standards. God, I want your standards. Because see, if God the standard says you're guilty, it doesn't matter what your wife says. It doesn't matter what your culture says. It doesn't matter what your friend says. If God says it, you're guilty. But see, on the flip side, it doesn't matter what our culture says. If God says you're not guilty, there should be no guilt. There should be no condemnation. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your husband says or your friends say. If God says it, it's definitive. And David is saying in this psalm, I've got a place to go to. I've got a place from which I can take my conscience and allow my conscience either to be convicted or to be satisfied. So we have to discern the difference between true and false guilt. But more than that, here's a big one. You ready for this? And this is something I've struggled with. You've got to know the difference between sorrow for sin and self-pity. You've got to know the difference between sorrow for sin and self-pity. 
Because how often have you known someone that said, you know, they've confessed and they confess and they confess and then they confess again and then they confess and nothing changes. Or they come before the church and maybe they've prayed up front and they pray and they pray, they repent and they repent, but there's no freedom. Or in a relationship, you see them cry and pour out their heart. I'm sorry, I can't believe I've done this again. They seem remorseful and yet six months later, there's, there's no change. See, there's a difference between being sorrowful for the circumstances being upset because I messed things up, and then actually being upset for the pain that you've caused someone else. And this isn't just true for you and God. This is, right, this is this way. Because you've heard the confession. Hey, listen, right? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. Meaning I'm not going to take the time. I'm not going to spend the emotional collateral to really get into your experience. If that's how you feel, forgive me. That's not sorrow for sin. It's self-pity. It's saying, I just want the problem. I just want the issue to go away. Stop bringing it up to me. And see, David is saying in verse 5, notice the language. It's kind of surprising. He says in the middle of verse 5 or at the end, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And here's the challenge. Isn't iniquity sin? Isn't sin iniquity? Why would he say you forgave the iniquity of my sin? It seems a little redundant. And what he's saying is you forgave the sinness of my sin, the offense of my sin. Because if you go down in verse 8, it has this interesting illustration, and God begins to speak to him, and God says, listen, David, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you in the path that you should go. I'm going to counsel you with my eye upon you, which is a reference to uh, personal intimacy. Then notice he says, but don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding who must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. He's saying, David, don't be a mule. See, mules don't do what their master wants because they love their master. They don't do what their master wants because they know the desires of their master and they go in the direction their master wants to go because they want to make the person riding on their back happy. Why does a mule go in the direction that it goes? Pain. It's called a bit. You put that bit, that bridle, in the horse's mouth. It pushes against the sides of the mouth. It causes pressure, which then causes the animal to go in that direction. Now, it goes in that direction not because it loves you. That's why you put a bit in its mouth. You put a bit in its mouth to make it submissive, to say, hey, I'm in control. I'm going to tell you where to go. The reason the mule goes that way, out of self-pity, it doesn't want to be hurt. It doesn't want to feel the negative consequences. See, I can't tell you how often I've, I've been with uh, couples, and, and you know there's a problem. You know, everybody kind of knows there's some tension. But then they get to a point where he says or she says, you know, I'm done. This is it. And maybe you've been there. And you say to your husband, hey, this is, I can't take this anymore. This is the ending point. I'm done. I'm out of here. And see, that's typically when the mule says, okay, let's go to counseling. Let's, this, let's get this addressed. And so you go to counseling, and in counseling, maybe he or she, you know, they're really feeling the weight 
of that decision, of that consequence of possibly losing this relationship. And so in counseling, they start to open up. And they ask questions. Hey, what do I need to do? How can I fix this? And maybe for six weeks, they're really doing great. And then things kind of start to slow down. And after about six months, they're right back where they started, doing the exact same thing. Now, if you went back six months ago, you saw the tears, you saw the pain, you saw the confession and the promises. But what happened? See, they didn't change for your sake, they changed for their sake. And once the pressure was gone, they became a mule. They didn't love you for you, they loved themselves, and their behavior was predicated on what they could get. David is, God's saying to David, don't be like a mule. Don't allow pain and pleasure to be what drives you. Rather, allow your love for me to be the thing that directs your life. That we can't just be self-pity, but rather to see what our sin has done to the person that we have harmed. That's the only thing that's going to heal a relationship, whether it's a husband and a wife. It's seeing things, and here's the third point, from their perspective. It's actually standing in their shoes, looking at things from their perspective and seeing how the pain that you've caused them has, has injured their heart or injured their mind or injured their life and entering that in such a way that you're actually sympathetic for the pain that you've caused. And see, that's what David is saying. God, it's against you and you only that I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That he's putting himself in the place of God. And he's imagining, and I think this is what the Psalms do well, is they meditate. And he's saying, if, God, if I've done this to you, how must that make you feel? And I know that's a pretty lofty place, but we can do that with each other. You think of a marriage relationship. Instead of just saying, hey, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. Why not say, you know, let me take some time to think about what I've done and, and, and put myself in your place to imagine the emotional pain it may cause, to imagine the stress that it may add to your life. And instead of just asking for the problem to go away, what if I incarnated? Have you heard that word? It's what Jesus did. What if I join you in your pain? And I allow that pain to influence what I see and ask forgiveness based on what I've actually done to you and not on what I think I deserve, what I think you deserve. See, we have to change our perspective, and that's what it means to confess. If you look it up in a dictionary, back your Bible, go through there and see the word confess, it'll say to say the same thing. Homo lagion, homo same lagion means say, say the same. It means to see things from God's perspective. And so as we walk through this, he's, he's saying we can't go to sorrow and we can't be self-pity. Rather, we've got to see things from the perspective of the one that we have injured. This is a great verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what he's saying? Godly grief, entering into the pain of the other, actually brings life. Sorrow for self brings more death. We need to get out of ourselves. Finally, you know, he says we need to change our perspective. And then the final, the final thing that he says is you've got to take full responsibility. You've got to take full responsibility. 
Again, he says this in verse 5, I did not cover my iniquity. Now, we've become experts at covering. Oh, yeah. Delete the history. Move things around, clean things up. Delete a text. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt the need to hide some sin? To cover things up? David's saying, God, I'm not going to cover. I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to open my life before you. Because see, what he's saying is, God, you're the only thing that can cover me, not my excuses. You're the only thing that can make me right. You know, in relationships, sometimes I think what happens is we have these scales. Well, I was 20% wrong. She's 80% wrong. She gets her 80% together. I'll do my 20. What David is saying, you need to own your 20% 100% and forget the 80%. Because that's the only thing that you can change. You need to address your 20%. You need to forget about the 80%. Because here's the reality. That person may never change. They may continue to be the person that they are. And you may just set up some new boundaries. However, the bitterness, the anger that you're carrying, it's going to destroy you. Which means you need to own the 20% that you have caused. 100%. Often, I think what our confession looks like is, hey, I know I did that, but come on. Look at what you did. Look at where you are, meaning if you do the right things, then I will. What is that? That's selfishness. I'll only do it if you do it. David is saying, God, I'm not going to cover. I'm not going to pretend that the things in my life caused me to do the things that I do because no one can cause you ultimately to do something. You still make a decision. David's saying, God, I'm going to own it 100%. You know why? Because Jesus did nothing, and yet he owned it 100%. He owned my sin, not 20%. He shouldn't have owned any of it, and yet he took it on himself, and he poured out his life for me on the cross. He's saying, we've got to stop shifting blame. And the final thing he says, and this is the third point, is that we need to find a new place to hide. We've got to find a new hiding place. Down in verse 7, <clears throat> 6 and 7, David says this, Therefore, let every, everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, this is essential. Hear me, that conviction you feel, it's not something you created. You feel it, you act on it. You're not going to be able to pull that in later. He's saying you don't control that. So if God is calling out to you to confess, you confess. Because God may not be found in the future. So he says, surely in the rush of great waters, meaning times of great stress, you may not find God. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You are a place of hiding for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You know, back in verse 2, he says, blessed is the one against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not count. See, what is forgiveness? It means that God doesn't count it against you. It is not God forgives and forgets. It's foolish because none of us do that. No one forgets. We all remember. What God doesn't do is he doesn't hold it against you. 
He doesn't apply it to your account. You know, when I was back in Texas, I had a group of about eight pastors, and each one of us um, would pay for lunch once a month. We'd get together, kind of connect, commiserate, uh, talk about our challenges, talk about how God's working in our lives, really confess our sins to each other. And when it was my turn to pay, we went to this great barbecue place. And the guys were loading up, you know, so the bill was getting big. And I was a little worried by the time we got to the checkout. But at the end of the meal, when we were all done and we had a great time, uh, the server came up and I said, hey, I need the check. It's my turn to pay. And he said, you know what? There was a gentleman in here from your church. He wouldn't tell me who he was, but he knew he was from my church and he paid the bill. And, and the cool thing was, wasn't just for me, it was the guys around me like, what? I don't even go to his church. And did he, did he cover the tip? Can we get the tip? And the guy was like, yeah, he, he, actually, he actually really tipped me well. And there was this feeling as if, what do you mean? We can't, we can't contribute anything? There's nothing we can add. Somebody did this for us apart from anything that we did. Well, see, that's what God's done for us. Apart from anything that we have done, he doesn't count our sin, our transgression against us. He owns it in its entirety. Because Jesus, he who knew no sin... He who knew no guilt became sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might know the righteousness of God, so that we could be covered, meaning that God would see us as if we had done everything Jesus had done. That is the Christian life. It's living on the foundation that I am solidly a child of God because when we put our faith in Jesus, Scripture says it's counted to us as righteousness. You hearing that? When God forgives us, he's saying, I don't count it against you. But when we trust in Jesus, God counts everything Jesus did on our account, and there's no bill. There's no tip. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is go, are you serious? You covered? Why? Why would you do that? I'm the one that offended you. And see, here's the challenge, and I'm going to close with this, but the challenge is you've got to learn to hide in God. When I was a young pastor, uh, I wasn't a very good pastor. (laughs) There was a lot of things I didn't get. And there was a woman that came to me, and this is in Massachusetts, I'm 20-something, I know nothing, I'm messing my marriage up, all of those kind of good things. This woman comes to me, and she lived a really rough life, a lot of abuse from men, I think she had three different children. All of them had different fathers. She struggled from abuse to abuse. She had addiction and addiction. And and God really did an amazing thing. I mean, God really began to change her life. And over time, her relationships with her kids were good, surprising. It was like these kids weren't all messed up. And they actually began to love their mom. And, And I had these conversations with her, and she would say, you know, I know God forgives me. I got it. And I don't know how, but my kids have forgiven me. Then she would say, but I don't feel forgiven. I'm kind of like, why? If God forgives you, your kids forgive you. And she said, well, because I can't forgive myself. You see, I can't forgive myself because I have these images of my mind, in my mind, of my child at four years old. My child's crying, screaming out. And instead of loving that child, I just want to get more of my addiction. And I can see myself slamming the door. And I stayed up at night just imagining the pain I must have caused my kids, the darkness they must have felt, 
that here they wanted nothing but the love of their mother, and yet in those moments, I said, I wanted my addiction. I want my drugs. I want to be satisfied, and I shut my children out. And I'm so grateful God has forgiven me. I'm so grateful my kids don't resent me, but I cannot forgive myself. Now, I'm 23. What am I going to do with that? Well, thankfully, Martin Luther came into my life. I know that seems odd, but I was taking a class, and it was the class called Martin Luther. It was on Luther. And Luther said something that I, I began to check to see if it was true. He said, no one sins, no one breaks any of the Ten Commandments without breaking rule one. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments, rule one is, you shall have no other gods before me. So I said, okay, I'm 23, I don't know any better. What is her God? Because Luther is saying you cannot break commandments two. You can't commit adultery without setting your heart on something other than God. So I asked the question, okay, I'm 23, I don't know anything. What is her God? And I wrestled and I wrestled and I realized her God was, what she really worshiped was being a good mom. The one thing she wanted to be was a good mom to a four-year-old son 10 years ago. And she couldn't get past it. That what was greater to her was her failure as a mom than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And every time she felt like a failure, she ran to that accusation. She ran to that voice. Are you with me? You may have not failed as a mom, but there's a place that you hide in. Every time you feel convicted, every time you have failed, you run to it, but it will never love you and it will never restore you. It wasn't until, listen, it wasn't until, and amazing, this is how I know that I've got no abilities. It wasn't until she confessed, God, I want to know your love more than I want to be a great mom. Wow. Her heart began to change. Her heart began to change with a simple confession of prayer. God, you're my standard of guilt. I have sinned against you and you alone. I want to hide and know that you have covered me completely. So let me ask, where are we hiding? Jesus Christ, through the gospel, is the best place to hide. Because, see, when we fail him, when we fail him, he pursues us. And he covers the depths of our sin. To the degree we experience the depths of God's forgiveness, listen, to that degree, we become happy, blessed, and joyful. Hey, this week, don't run to perfection. Don't run to the law. Run to Jesus Christ, and in that, experience the grace of God that renews us so that we're not mules, but the children of God. And let me pray for us. Father, I thank you as, as one who has been such a mule in your sight. I have been stubborn in your patience. Father, I know I have been rebellious when you have been good to me. And Father, it amazes me that you're so faithful to yourself, to your character, that you put up with what you see past. You see all the, pro the pomp. You see our positioning. You see our excuses. And yet, you love us. And you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be that atoning covering, the atoning sacrifice, covering my sin and shame. Lord, this week would we walk in the confidence that you've covered us. 
I don't need to spin the truth. I don't need others to approve me. Because if you do, Father, all it will produce is an overwhelming joy and a love for others because of what you've done. Father, help us to walk in the blessedness of being forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.